Ottawa. Welcome to Moment of Truth, where we take a deep dive into Indigenous and other issues surrounding people, the places we live, politics, the arts, the environment, and all other topics that matter. And I'm filling in today for our regular show host, David Moses. Today on Moment of Truth, in the first half hour, I'm with Deanna Durham, Manager of Indigenous Initiatives at Kids Help Phone Line. And later on in the show, Rachel Pulfer from Canadian Journalists for Human Rights. So, Deanna, welcome to Moment of Truth. Thank you. It's your first time on our show. Mm -hmm. So the Kids Help Phone Line, what is it? So Kids Help Phone, uh, we're actually in our 30th year this year. Next week marks our 30th birthday. So we provide support to to young people across Canada. So mental health support um, through professional counseling on uh, phone and chat. And also um, we have volunteer crisis crisis responders who provide um, support through texting now. And and that's in addition to our... um, our, uh, all the resources that we have on our website and um, and uh, and our um, community resource database where we connect youth with resources in their communities. So it's kind of like counseling for kids. They can call in and get the counseling. Yeah, uh, any young young person. So uh, it's youth as they define themselves. So we see um, young people from age five up until twenty nine. Age five mm-hmm. are reaching out. On their own, they're reaching out? Sometimes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How do kids find out about the helpline? Well, there's um, we have a lot of support from um, media partners like yourself, um, and we, we uh, advertise. But a lot of times people hear about us through events like our Walk So Kids Can Talk, which was just on May 5th, and we had... Uh, we had, um, I'm not sure how many, um, over 10,000 walkers who came out to support us at 39 sites across the country. Um, and that is a big, um, that builds a lot of awareness for us. But we have a lot of advocates. It's in, like I said, we've been around for 30 years. So a lot of people used our services when we first started in, in um, 89 and in the 90s and now come back and support us in other ways like building awareness. Fantastic. Is is it made aware of in schools as well? Yes, yeah. Um, it's uh, throughout uh, schools and libraries. I, I was um, just at an open house last night for my kids in, in uh, Ancaster, and you can see the posters all over the walls there too. And this is great. Yeah. This is great. And are these professional counselors or volunteer counselors? Phone and chat are professional counselors are texting our trained supervisors. So the supervisors receive uh, 36 hours of training and then they're monitored um, in real time by professional counselors. So it, uh, our texting uses um, crisis, um, uh, crisis text line and uh, that's a charity in the United States. Um, and they um, have this amazing network where uh, our crisis responders who are volunteers can um, interact with each other and show support and access resources themselves. And um, it's an amazing um, technology and has really um, been a huge benefit already to young people across Canada. And how many kids on average call in a day? In a day? Uh, Well, I know last year we had 105,000 sessions. Uh, What that breaks down to a day, I'm not sure. But uh, it's it's increasing because we've been increasing our services as we go. 
So our, our chat services uh, used to be five nights a week, but with uh, donor support, we've now made it uh, full-time. So that happened last August. And in last November, our texting service went national. We had started piloting it in February. So in November, it went national. So we are providing supports in new ways um, all the time. And innovation is, is one of the things that I think has kept kids helpful and around for so long. And um, and why kids keep coming back to us, where we stay relevant with um, current technologies. Are most kids texting and chatting or phoning? We're finding that as we uh, expand into chat and text, more more young people are using texting um, and uh, lesser to a lesser extent chat, and then to a lesser extent phone. Um, and and there are a number of reasons for that. And in um, in some places, it's a matter of what you have access to. You know, in indigenous communities, uh, connectivity can still be an issue, so uh, they may only be able to reach out through phone. But at the same time, with phone, you don't necessarily have the um, kind of uh, private space to make the call, right? Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So you can be in your room and send a text and not worry that someone's listening. Yeah. And that happens a lot. And, and we get like we get texts um, from kids who are in the middle of class and in the washroom during school and, and things like that. So and who would think that, you know, as a teacher, who would think that their young person was texting for help, um, for support, you know, during class. But that's reality. And when they can text through um, or chat in a in a format where they're they're typing, it allows them to retain the conversation. So, uh, with text, we find a lot of young people will refer back to the conversations. Uh, with phone, that's you know you it's get fleeting. off the phone. It's and like it's radio; it's just fleeting. Exactly. For sure. Yes, you can mm-hmm. read it. Now, is there any ever time when there's an obvious need for follow up? Like, say a child's in danger. We do have, so with phone and chat, um, those are completely anonymous and confidential. So if a young person uh, does identify their location um, and the duty to report is triggered so that so they, their life is in danger, then we will contact um, for emergency supports. With texting, we have the same confidentiality, but the phone number is in the system. So it's not accessible to the crisis responder, but um, there is that ability to contact emergency services if needed. And uh, we've already, we have uh, one to two um, uh, crisis interventions a day where we're saving lives. We've had over 700 since uh, since texting went national in, in November. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's how, how, how does someone respond to that? Well, we stay on the line with them um, if we can, you know, so it's not the crisis responder that they're talking to or the counselor who calls in, like some, someone else in the office uh, calls in and, uh, and we stay with them all the way. Often the young person asks for support. So in the case of uh, if it's someone on the phone, they may, you know, they may say, you know, I do need help, you know, please send somebody. So, so it's, um, it's, it's life-saving, and uh, it's it's scary to think that this wasn't around over 30 years ago. Well, you mentioned duty to report. Mm-hmm. What what prompts the duty to report? I mean, that might be one incident instance. Well, the, when the person's life is in imminent danger, and um, 
you know, and that's that's one of the requirements for it. But we're also looking as we work more with Indigenous young people at other situations where they're not um, in danger of uh, of violence or um, or taking their own life. It could be something um, where there we, we had a, we had a discussion recently about how to handle young people who are exposed to the elements who contact us and say, "I have nowhere to go." Um, you know, what, how do we handle that? And we're looking now at treating that um, in the same, in the same way. So you, there is a general kids help phone line, any kid can call. And then your, your focus is on Indigenous kids, Métis, Inuit, First Nations from across Canada. That's my, um, my role as a manager of Indigenous initiatives. So I work uh, to ensure that we're doing our very best to support uh, Indigenous young people and also to lead the organization through reconciliation efforts. So uh, I'm a First Nations person myself. I'm a Mohawk, uh, and I have settler ancestry as well from uh, Six Nations. So, and I've been working, uh, this is my first time working in a, in a non-Indigenous environment. I've been working um, at a Six Nations uh, since 1999. So how's that going? <laughs> it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really rewarding. Um, and kids help phone has been, uh, really, um, just incredibly, uh, open to doing everything we can to support indigenous young people. And that takes a lot of courage because what is the number one thing that you need to support indigenous young people is indigenous leadership. So, uh, and that's why we've brought in our Indigenous Advisory um, Council. So all our Indigenous efforts are led by our Indigenous Advisory Council, and they are the ones who created um, the foundation of our Indigenous Youth Action Plan, which is called Finding Hope. And tell us about Finding Hope. So Finding Hope uh, is, it's a very clear plan of action of how we are going to support Indigenous young people. So we have seven over, overarching goals, and we have 37 actions. So these actions are, um, of, you know, of course, we are um, increasing education, um, education among our counselors and crisis responders in terms of uh, incorporating Indigenous healing practices into our, um, into our supports but also understanding the realities of, uh, of life for Indigenous young people in urban and rural and um, urban environments. So uh, understanding that in a lot of isolated communities, there are no ambulances. So how does that affect our crisis response? Exactly. So, um, so we education is a key part of that. Our entire staff uh, receive mandatory training on Indigenous peoples, including our board of directors. Um, but we're also recognizing that uh, mental health uh, for Indigenous young people especially is um, closely connected to other things like um, cultural, uh, cultural connectivity and connection to the lands and um, physical health, you know, all these things, and economic opportunities, educational opportunities. So the action plan... Um, in addition to looking at how we're um, how our brand resonates with Indigenous young people and how um, you know how we can educate ourselves, uh, how Indigenous people can work with us to help in education, 
We're also looking at uh, how we can support indigenous economies. So uh, we are, um, we've set a, a high targets for um, increasing the number of indigenous people who work and volunteer with Kids Helpful. We've also um, looked at uh, revising our procurement strategy. So we're purchasing um, more, more things from indigenous people. So, and, and one of the ways that we're doing that is, um, is through, uh, an example of this would be through the photography on, um, in Finding Hope in the document. Yes, it's absolutely stunning. Can't really, can't really show everybody on the radio, but it's <laughs> absolutely beautiful. All about finding hope, and the document is gorgeous photography on here. What's the story? Yeah, well, it's it. You can people can see it online too at at kidshelpphone.ca/indigenous, and um, the the cover of the action plan is a, a young um, person from Pinehouse, Saskatchewan, who's um, looking out at the Northern Lights for the first time. Um, he's part of the Pinehouse Photography Club in uh, Northern Saskatchewan. So as we were going to design with the action plan and recognizing that um, ensuring Indigenous young people um, see themselves in our outreach materials, so we, we already had plans to um, increase the number of photos of Indigenous young people in our um, outreach materials, um, I heard about this photography club in, um, in Saskatchewan. It's a Métis and Cree community, Pine House, and I thought, um, why not give them a call and see if they would like to work with us on um, on photography for the action plan. And they were thrilled to do so. Um, and the Pine House Photography Club is um, it's a community program led by Dre Irwin, who is a primary care nurse. And he's um, he's set up this club for young people to. Uh, Really, it's a modern way of connecting them with the land. And they're really looking out and seeing the world as a beautiful place and a place that they want to be a part of and continue to be a part of. So when we asked if they'd be interested in, um, in sharing some of their photos with us, they were thrilled to do so. And um, 11 of the photos in Finding Hope are from Pine House. Uh, you can tell which ones because of the photo credits. Um, we purchased them. I think they would have given them to us um, for free, but uh, it was important to us that we that we pay, of course. because um, we need to recognize the talent of Indigenous young people too. And this is an opportunity for us to not only not only not just focus on all the challenges that are facing Indigenous young people, but really celebrate the talent that they have. Um, and Indigenous people have skills that the whole world can benefit from and photography is just one of the ways that we can do this so um, through our uh, communication channels and through finding hope one of the things that we want to do is really um, celebrate the achievements and the beauty of indigenous cultures and we'll do that by promoting um, programs like the pine house photography club and uh, and other amazing initiatives that are happening across the country and that are led by Indigenous youth. We're going to take a short little break. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 LMNFM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. 
I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in for David Moses, and we'll be right back with our guest, Deanna Durham from Kids Help Phoneline. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Our website is elementfm.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in today for David Moses, along with my guest, Deanna Durham from Kids Help Phoneline. Just curious, Deanna, what are the reasons kids call in about? You mentioned possible suicides, which is very sad. But what are some other reasons? Well, young people can reach out to us anytime anything's bothering them. So it could be um, some of the calls that we have or some of the people who reach out to us from Indigenous communities uh, are, you know, kids who are in care, kids who are in hospital beds away from their communities and are lonely. So there are um, people can call us about um, bullying, anxiety, uh, financial um, stress. So uh, there, there's um, anytime anything is bothering them, they can reach out to us, and they do. We have our our counselors are trained to respond to all um, kinds of uh, of concerns. Um, grief is another one. So um, with Indigenous youth, uh, we know a lot of them reach out because they're grieving so uh, or lonely or away from home for school, too. Right, so, right. Yeah. It's quite a shock, I understand. So you live in a fly-in community, and mm-hmm. suddenly you're in school in Toronto. That's a huge leap. It is a huge leap. And now uh, there are some people, I know in, in Winnipeg, there are young people who are displaced from their communities uh, due to flooding, who have been in in Winnipeg living in an urban environment and now are moving back to rural communities and some of them are 8 years old and have never been in an in a rural environment so it's there's all kinds of situations where people feel kind of um, geographically displaced but when the kid calls in how does the person responding ask for how do you know where the kid is from what well, the kid's going through. If you have someone who's a Toronto counselor mm-hmm. and a kid from a tiny First Nation calls in, there's a disconnect right there, I think, of, of understanding. Mm-hmm. And and that disconnect um, is something that, uh, you know, we address through education. Uh, the, this, the experiences that a young person would have in a remote community are very different than they might have in an urban setting. So we have to be prepared for for those different um, those different situations, and we'll do that by um, bringing in indigenous experts um, who have frontline experience to come in and work with our counselors. That's a key part of our action plan to um, to have that uh, that training to um, to ensure that we do really understand and and uh, and you know at the end of the day we. We know that our counselors always uh, come from a place without any judgment. You know, they are completely open to speaking about any subject matter. They will never judge. Um, It's completely confidential. So really, anytime anything is bothering someone and any, um, you know, feeling that they have, we're here to listen. You mentioned there's an Indigenous Advisory Council and... Who's on that council? 
And what do they do? So our Indigenous Advisory Council is made up of Indigenous, um, so it's, it has uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis representation. Uh, they're experts from across Canada. Half of them are young people themselves. And they uh, are made up of, uh, of educators, of uh, clinical specialists of um, young people, people who are really um, committed to supporting the mental health of young people. And it's, um, their bios are on our, our website on kidshelpphone.ca if you go to slash indigenous and you can learn all about them. Um, and what they do is they are leading all these efforts. So we had uh, we began with a strategic planning session where 22 of our staff came and met face to face with uh, with the advisory council, and basically said, you know, this is a service that we provide. These are the resources that we have. How can we use these to best support Indigenous young people? And in some cases, uh, the advisory council said, you need to go back and do something completely different. Um, we have a program called uh, Counselor in the Classroom where uh, one of our, our counselors has a, um, a phone conversation with a class. Um, and it, it's really a way to kind of break down those barriers and encourage help-seeking behavior. Uh, under the action plan, we are developing an indigenous stream of that program. So the advisory council came up with these ideas. Um, we turn those ideas into these actions, um, came back to them, reviewed it, the last people to see it were our executive team and our board. It was all approved by our advisory council first. And uh, and now as we implement them, they approve um, the policies that we develop, the program um, programs that we develop, all that stuff goes back to them for feedback and approval. And who funds Kids Help Phone Line? A lot of our funding comes from uh, former users of our service. Uh, Almost 40% is now from government funding, uh, and the rest is um, corporations and, uh, and individual supporters. So uh, I mentioned the Walk So Kids Can Talk that happens in the first week of May. Uh, that is our biggest source of core funding for the organization. And the big question, if kids want to reach out to you or anyone who identifies as being a kid, mm -hmm. how do they reach out? So they can uh, text us through, um, they can text 686868, or they can call us at 1-800-668-6868, or they can um, reach out to us by chat through our Always There app, which you can find it in um, app stores, or through our website at kidshelpphone.ca. Well, that's great. It's an app as well. Yeah, we, helpful. it is helpful. It's a great, and, and the app also connects young people to our community resource database, which is the largest of its kind in Canada. So that's a database of uh, over 26,000 uh, resources. Um, 19,000 of those are, are on resources around me, which is how you access it through our website and app. So it allows uh, young people to, to connect with services that are available to them. Well, Deanna, thank you so much for being a guest today A Moment of Truth. That's terrific information. So one more time, 1-800-668-6868 or via the app for Kids Help Phone Line. You can text, you can chat, you can call, and you'll get help. Yes. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in today for David Moses. You're listening to 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and you can listen on our website, elementfm.ca, or via the Radio Player Canada app. We'll be back after this with Rachel Pulfer from Journalists for Human Rights. Well, welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and we're live streamed on our website, elementfm.ca, that's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca, and via the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in today for David Moses, and I'm with Rachel Palfer, Executive Director of Journalists for Human Rights, live with me in studio. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Kathy. It's wonderful to be here. We spoke to Rachel a few months ago, and we pulled her back in. Because there was a huge announcement last week. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the announcement, for those who don't know, kindly explain what the role of Journalists for Human Rights. Sure. So Journalists for Human Rights is Canada's largest homegrown media development organization. Uh, we've been in business, I guess, since uh, 2002. And we uh, do what is called media development, which is strengthening, st- strengthening journalists' ability to do their jobs. Uh, whether that be working to create an enabling environment for good media to thrive, uh, training journalists directly. And uh, in Canada, we also have an Indigenous rights program, which I was here last to speak about, where we train youth in communities on the basics of media, and we train non-Indigenous journalists on how to cover um, Indigenous uh, stories with depth, empathy, accuracy. And you go to other countries as well. It's not That's just right. Canada oh, and yes. Indigenous communities. And mm-hmm. what are some of the countries you're involved in? So we are currently in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Sudan. We just started a new project in Mali. We've been in Jordan for several years. Uh, and we work with a diaspora network of Syrian journalists, mostly in Turkey. This project will allow us to considerably expand the work in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Jordan uh, with the Syrian journalists, and also uh, it will allow us to launch a new program in Kenya. Okay, before we get to that, now we're going to get to that, just a little bit more about what you do on how you do it. So, for example, is a journalist from does a journalist from Canada volunteer to go to another country and then train a group of people? There's well, the way we like to to explain it because it's more. It, it's, it's, we're trying to get to a, the most accurate description possible. This program in particular will allow us to create a wonderful network of partnerships between the best of media in Canada, which I'm delighted to say includes ABTN, uh, and the best of Global South Media, with whom we partner across those four countries I mentioned. Uh, we will be sending journalists from here over to work side by each with their counterparts in a variety of media partners across those countries. Uh, and we like to think to describe it as a program of skills exchange. Uh, the journalist selected to go from here obviously has some sort of key skill, whether it be covering gender-based violence or data journalism or investigative skills that they will be imparting. Uh, but what we found in so many of these programs is that they also learn so much from their Global South counterparts. Of and that's course. the part which is going to be really interesting. You can't just go thinking, I'm a teacher because, no. We have so much to learn all the time. We're always students, really. Exactly. It's the best approach. Exactly. And then technology, et cetera. Do you send engineers also who help set up a radio station? Uh, That's an interesting thought. Are there radio stations that you're setting up? uh, Storytelling. It's more storytelling and skills. Uh, We 
work with partners who are already to some extent set up um, and we send over journalists, journalism trainers who can help them in areas where they've identified they need support. Uh, We don't do so much of the technology piece, but that is something we could consider looking at uh, as we go through this program. All right. And as a result of giving others the tools to tell stories, Mm -hmm. what's happened? What are some success stories? stories? Okay. So this is the fun part. Uh, For example, uh, earlier this uh, year in our Syria diaspora program, we worked with a fabulous network of Syrian journalists on coverage of a very, very sad story, Um, a young man who had uh, live-streamed the honor killing of his sister, which is tough stuff. Um, And uh, so we worked with this network to uh, showcase that this put a spotlight on the fact that this had happened uh, and engage with the uh, Bar Association of Aleppo, which is a network of lawyers, and the uh, Syrian Islamic Council, which is a network of imams, uh, on what should be done, uh, ethically speaking, uh, about the situation. And the, there was about 11 pieces of coverage uh, through the March, February-March period that we were focusing on this particular story. And as a result, the Syrian Islamic Council actually issued a fatwa in mid-March uh, calling out honor killing as un-Islamic, uh, which is incredibly that, powerful. That's a success story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Are any of the journalists ever in danger? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No, it's a, it's a challenging um, environment in which to work. When we first went into South Sudan, for example, uh, we were working with uh, a network of journalists there. And the situation, it was like open conflict between media and authorities. And what we were able to do there, thanks to the expanded support of the government of Canada, is work with police, national security, uh, members of the army, uh, army brigadiers general, uh, and uh, also this entity called the Media Authority in South Sudan, whose job it is uh, to arbitrate disputes between media and authorities. It's sort of a remnant of the British Media Council concept. Uh, that is quite common in a lot of these environments. And as a result of this work, we were able to build a coalition of support for media freedoms as laid out by the Constitution of South Sudan. The media laws that govern media there are actually quite progressive, as is often the case in many of these places. But nobody knew about them, and nobody understood them, and nobody was enforcing them. And so this work helped to surface these laws, made it clear that there was one authority, the media authority, that was supposed to be arbitrating these disputes and ensured that the police and various government officials and the national security uh, apparatus had an understanding of these laws. And as a result, when in 2014, when we first started in South Sudan, deaths of journalists were at uh, Afghanistan levels. Uh, in the last two and a half years, no journalists have died in the course of their work in South Sudan. And in the past year, no journalist has been incarcerated either for their work. Oh, my goodness. Brave journalist to go there. Very brave. As well. Very brave, yes. Oh, my goodness. So let's get into your new program. Mm -hmm. And you got a huge funding boost from Global Affairs Canada. I'm going to let you explain. (laughs) Sure. So we had been working with uh, folks at Global Affairs and also with our network of media partners. Uh, Conversations started in 2016. This was part of the International Assistance Review. So a number of NGOs, of which JHR was one, were invited by Global Affairs to put forward new ideas for looking at what does Canada do well 
and what could we do better uh, when it comes to international assistance? And there were many great ideas that came out of that consultation. But as I looked at it, I, I, I used to be a business reporter, and so I sort of did an industry analysis. And I was thinking about all the journalists that we've, frankly, exported. Uh, there are so many media companies in the world, from Al Jazeera to the New York Times, that are run by Canadians. Don't wear the flag on their sleeve. But the reality is, is that we do have this sort of core cadre of really, really strong journalists who've, who've come, come up in the, in, the, in the field through a journalistic tradition that is very much steeped in the, the ethics of balance, accuracy, fairness, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, well, you know, we do journalism well. We should be doing more journalism through media development. Uh, we should be giving back, in a sense, through those skills. Uh, and I, so I made this proposal um, and discussed it with uh, Troy Reeb of uh, Chorus and also with Wendy Freeman of CTV uh, and folks at CBC and a, a range of other partners. And you know, asked, we, we had had this fabulous set of partnerships with CTV uh, Global and CBC where we were sending over some of their top journalists as trainers already. And so I thought, well, maybe we could adapt some aspects of that existing program and scale them uh, so that we could do more of that work uh, and send over more people to do more training and produce more stories uh, and work with uh, uh, their Global South counterparts to produce more stories on a variety of human rights issues, but with a special emphasis on women and girls. Uh, and there's been lots of, ask of questions about uh, the women and girls angle uh, to explain a little bit about that uh, over the last 12 years of media development practice, uh, starting in really Sierra Leone and Liberia, what JHR saw is that uh, in these environments that are post-conflict or hot conflict, the kinds of stories that are daily coverage in Canada, stories about health, education, environment, child welfare, are in those environments too often regarded as women's issues and therefore not as important as stories about politics or conflict or which militia is taking out which militia or whatever the issue is in the conflict at the time. In South Sudan, it was a constant stream of coverage about the peace process and its endless stop and go um, quality. And so what, what we found is that by prioritizing women's stories in those contexts and girl, women and girls' stories and prioritizing women as experts being quoted in these stories, but also uh, as uh, journalists in their own right and providing them with, 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 with specialized training to help them to take on leadership positions in their media partners, we saw a flowering of coverage of these kinds of uh, issues that helped to then engage authorities and stakeholders in solutions. What are we going to do when there's a rural hospital that is not staffed by a doctor, for example? It's a problem. It's a problem, uh, and, for sure. And putting a spotlight on that, uh, you know, within a couple of days, uh, Liberian Health Services had sent a doctor to that hospital. So, yay! Mm -hmm. And now I love also that we're giving women and girls a voice. Yes, yes, it's very, very so important. needed, especially in a lot of places where women are still very oppressed. Correct. So the average is it's about five to one, men to women, when it comes to the ratios of uh, of. Uh, the gender breakdown in our various media partners in these places. And what we've seen also is the reality that in a scenario where uh, women are so underrepresented in media stories, so underrepresented in coverage, that means 50% of the population is not getting a fair shake when it comes to uh, having their voices heard, being able to articulate their issues uh, and find redress. And so we thought, well, in the spirit of fairness, back accuracy and balance, 
we need to rebalance that so that we end up with a more fair picture of yeah, what's And they going have on. to learn how. Exactly. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to find out how they learn. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM, E-L-M-N-T-F-M. I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in for David Moses. And after this short break, we'll be back with Rachel Pulfer from Journalists for Human Rights. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on LMNFM, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Also live streamed on our website, lmnfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in today for David Moses, along with my guest, Rachel Pulfer from Journalists for Human Rights. She's told us about a huge infusion of funding from Global Affairs Canada. It's going to help with giving more voice for women and girls by training them how to tell stories, Mm -hmm. be journalists. Mm -hmm. Any other success stories you want to share? Well, just to give an example of how this type of programming works in one of the most complicated environments uh, in which to work in all of our country programs, uh, we have this fabulous partnership with a a school uh, in eastern Congo, in Bukavu. Uh, It was launched by a man named Prince Merhula, who is a radio journalist, a station manager, a lawyer, a award-winning human rights journalist, and then uh, once he, he, he at one point won an award um, uh, for human rights journalism he had done with us and took the award money to, uh, to, to basically build a school for journalists in the region using our curriculum as the basis for the school's pedagogy. And... Uh, but in 2014, he was working with a young woman, student journalist, and there was a problem. There was a militia that uh, was committing mass rape. Uh, this part of Congo is known as the rape capital of the world for the way that rape is used as a weapon of war. And uh, so they decided to follow the story and spotlight uh, who was funding this militia uh, because there was um, a political purpose behind this. And it came to light that it was a parliamentarian who was actually quite powerful. And through the documentary uh, film that they made of this situation, the, the parliamentarian was uh, imprisoned. The militia was shut down. And last year, in the middle of the year in the summer, we heard that he had been sentenced in local courts to life imprisonment. And when I explained this story to uh, the then Minister of uh, International Development, Marie-Claude Bibot, she came to uh, our, our, our gala last year in uh, October of last year. She looked at me just so surprised because she had been um, to that part of the Congo and she, said, she had said to me, that was the part of the Congo where I just lost hope. It didn't seem as though anyone cared about the situation of these women. There was generations who had been broken, their bodies and souls broken by this horrific uh, use of rape as, as, as this instrument of war. Um, and yet here was, through storytelling, through media, a way to spotlight a horrific incident. And then uh, the result was that uh, the person responsible was brought to justice. And, and that, that's the kind of work that keeps me going in the it's morning. huge work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about in Canada? In Does Canada. have any impact here? Well, what we've seen, and I'm going to be very interested to, to, to see this and, and track it as, uh, as we roll out this program, we've had these programs with CTV, with Global, with CBC. Uh, we sent your fabulous Karen Pugliese over to, uh, to South Sudan last year to work with a South Sudanese broadcaster on decolonizing media. I thought, who better than Karen yes, Pugliese? Yes. 
uh, to do that work. And uh, what's been fascinating is seeing people come back. And they come back with this acute understanding of why what they do matters so much. Because we live in a society where, yes, there's lots of problems for media. Yes, there's situations where... We we keep hearing about fake news. Fake news and and the business model is eroding and all of these issues. Uh, The Global Mail sadly has announced some voluntary severance uh, around earlier this week. Uh, But uh, the reality is, is that we live in a society where we have pretty rigorous oversight. And when you go to an environment like the DRC or South Sudan and you see what life is like when you don't have this, you know, determined, focused cadre of reporters providing that oversight and keeping people safe from the governing class, uh, you, you, it, it, it helps you see, wow, what I do matters. What I, it's uh, a pillar of democracy. It's a pillar of democracy. And, and these are, you know, very, very high, sound, high-minded terms. But when you see that in action, it's incredibly inspiring and motivating. And what we've seen is that when people come back, they just, they step it up. Like they, they, they are engaged with their work. They want to do an incredible uh, job. And, uh, and they just have this, this much more fine-tuned understanding of why what they, does mat- what they do matters so very much. And that, I find, has been hugely energizing, uh, both for us and for the partners that we work with. Uh, I'm also curious, we've seen, I mean, basically for some of these journalists, it's the first time that they've been in Africa. It's the first time that they've been ex- exposed to that kind of poverty or situations where um, they're working side by each with journalists who, who regularly run risks that they would never dream of running themselves. Uh, and, and again, uh, what I've seen is this, this, uh, this, uh, this incredible inspiration uh, to come back and really you know, step it up to do your job in an environment where you have so many more protections and uh, so much more support. In this now, you mentioned the APTN. Mm-hmm. They're new, we're new, mm-hmm. a new... Um, Spon- the sponsors at the right partner. 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 Mm-hmm. How does that partnership work? Okay, so for the the period of the program, uh, once we get things up and running, and there's a small mount- mountain of paperwork still to be done, uh, but probably as of February of next year, we'll be in a position to be able to put a call out uh, to APTN's uh, network of reporters and journalists uh, for candidates to apply to be. Uh, uh, to be with us to go overseas. And so we, uh, APTN will screen those candidates. Uh, you know, usually there's sort of a pool of between 25 and 50 who apply. It's a lot. Uh, it's what we've seen in other programs. We'll see how it goes with APTN, but a lot of people want to go overseas and have that sure, experience. Sure, have that experience. Uh, and, uh, and so APTN will do the first screen, and then uh, we'll get a short list um, of uh, folks from you guys in order to uh, get a sense of who would be the best fit for the places where the project has the most need. Um, And so we do that final screen, and then we match the successful journalist uh, to a media partner in a given program, and then we get organized to send them over. Uh, Obviously, there is an element of the media partner has to coordinate backfill, and uh, so we give people a fair bit of lead time for all of this to happen. Uh, And then the journalist goes over after a fairly uh, in-depth pre-departure orientation in Toronto 
and then in country orientation in country. You know, you get a sense of what you're up against. That's right. That's right. We you won't don't really know till you're there. But. Exactly. And we want to make sure people are as set up to succeed as they can be. Right. Uh, these are challenging environments. They're working with people who have literally seen it all. Um, and they need to, you know, be in a position where they can really win that newsroom's trust. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so we want to make sure that people are sent over with all that they need to succeed in those kinds of environments. Just a personal question. I'm just, you seem so passionate. Rachel's eyes light up talking <laughs> about this, about this work. What drew you to this? Well, I grew up in developing countries. I was a child of uh, the land of development. My father was a CEDA field officer in Lesotho in the 80s, in, which is a tiny little country surrounded by South Africa. And we also lived in Swaziland. We lived in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> and uh, I just remember when I was in those environments, you know, uh, the government of Lesotho at one point ran out of paper because somebody had embezzled the budget. Oh <laughs> so you, you had to bring your own paper to get, you know, your driver's license paperwork printed or whatever it was. Uh, the king of Swaziland at one point appropriated a quarter of the country's budget for a Learjet for his personal use, his oh. and his family's. And this is the kind of thing that, oh my that goodness. I mean, this is what can happen when there is, uh, there, there is a lack of oversight. Uh, there's other elements, obviously, that are problematic as well. But I thought when I heard about Journalists for Human Rights, oh, my skill set is journalism. And that makes sense because you can work with and through journalists to reach so many people and ensure that they have an understanding of what's going on in their society. And so, and so it proved at our South Sudan program, it's the smallest government uh, program in the Canadian government's uh, bilateral envelope of funding. Uh, it's the smallest grant, but it's having, according to the former Ambassador Alan Hampson, the largest impact because we reach up to 4 million South Sudanese a day with the kind of uh, human rights reporting that we've been training on. And a lot of that is thanks to Karen's work because she was working with a South Sudanese broadcaster and they have one of the largest reaches. So. I believe it. Karen's a force. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. She, she just won another award, too. She did. She did. Yes. She, did. she went out. She's going to Harvard. That's right. Yes. That's right. A fellowship. Yeah. I can't wait to send her a yuppie sweater. I know. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Harvard. Who wouldn't want to go? Well, that just shows mm -hmm. the level of people you're sending right. and the type of people who are brave and willing committed. to literally go the distance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to help give other people in the world the tools to get their stories out there. That's right, and ground their societies. I mean, one of the things that I've come to realize, and Eric Trottier said this last year, uh, we built a partnership with La Presse, and he said, you know, uh, I asked him, why did you want to be part of this program? And he said, because journalism is a foundation for a free society. Uh, and through the gift of journalism, you're giving people the, the, the capacity to evaluate and understand and be informed about what's going on. And that is just so, so valuable. Um, so yes, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing program. Yeah, and I, th I think this is a really important message to hear, mm -hmm. that it's not all fake news out there. There are really hardworking people with their, with their hearts and minds in the right place well, a in big terms part. of mm -hmm. telling stories, getting the word out there, and even risking their lives. A big part of what we believe, and we actually have a campaign running right through this month of May that we launched on Press Freedom Day, is that you, the best way to fight fake news is with real news. Uh, and so by strengthening journalists' ability to produce real news, we can help to clarify you know, what is truth, what are facts, uh, and help people to understand all, both what goes into the process of producing quality journalism and where to put their trust. 
And if someone wants to find out more about Journalists for Human Rights, where can they find out? Well, we can, they can go to our website, www.jhr.ca. Uh, there is uh, uh, information on Twitter, uh, following our Twitter handle, at JHR News. Uh, and, uh, and then it seems as though we've been doing quite a lot of media as well over the last little while. But jhr.ca is the best spot. Rachel mm-hmm. Pulfer, thank you so much for coming in today and enlightening us. It's J- uh, Rachel Pulfer from Journalists for Human Rights. I'm Kathy Sabokin. I've been filling in today for David Moses. And you've been listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. Have a great day. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.